following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're working through the book of Exodus this year, uh, the first half of Exodus at least, which is the story of God liberating the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt and bringing them out of that place. And we've worked through the early chapters of Exodus, the, uh, the early years or the first 80 years of Moses' life. And the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the encounter between Moses and God at the burning bush, where God calls Moses to be his uh, deliverer, to be his spokesperson before uh, Pharaoh and before the Israelites. And we've spent two weeks looking at that encounter. And last week, if you remember, we talked about the signs that God gave to Moses, signs of his power, the signs of his presence, signs of his grace. And, and we talked about finding those signs in, in ordinary life, the way that we can find signs of God's grace anywhere, in the commonplace stuff, in the ordinary things of life. Hopefully this week, you've had a bit of a chance to think about that. And maybe you've been a little bit more attentive to the way that God shows up in ordinary places, the way that we can find God's fingerprints in just the ordinary stuff of life, even the rain, right? The really ordinary things that God is there. He's present in all of this, and he's revealing himself to us. And uh, we just need to learn to look and learn to listen for those things. And we'll start finding traces of the divine everywhere. We'll start finding burning bushes where we never expected to see them. Uh, we've got study sheets for this series. If you want to grab one of those, we, I'm, I'm producing those every week. I know some of you are doing them in your life groups. If you just want to pick up a sheet on your way out as a way of just doing some application around the message and uh, doing some study follow-on questions, uh, you can get hard copies over there. You can grab them online through our website, and that'll just hopefully keep you thinking, keep you processing what we've been talking about. This morning, we're in Exodus chapter 5. So uh, we, we finish the scene of Moses and Pharaoh at the burning bush. Moses returns to Egypt, and then really chapter 5 in Exodus begins a new section where Moses has an encounter with Pharaoh. This is the beginning of this drama that gets played out between Moses and Pharaoh, and that's going to stretch now through several chapters. So let me read chapter 5 of Exodus to you. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. 
Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had the straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought this trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So, the beginning of this chapter, the scene is Pharaoh's royal court. You've got to kind of picture this scene in your mind. This is going to become the stage for a great drama that gets played out between Moses and Pharaoh, which is really a drama between Yahweh, God, and the gods of Egypt. That's what's going on in the big picture. But this royal court is where all this back and forth happens. You've got to imagine all the opulence, all the extravagance of the Egyptian royal court. You picture Pharaoh there sitting on his throne. Probably he's got some advisors some, some sorcerers, magicians. He's got some servants there. And then before him is Moses and Aaron as those who have come to challenge Pharaoh and possibly with them, some of the Israelite overseers. There's a hint in the text that maybe some of the Israelite overseers have come with Moses to as representatives of the people to see how this goes. It's helpful to keep in mind before we dive into this scene, Moses knows this Pharaoh personally. Remember, Moses had an adopted Egyptian family. This is not the same Pharaoh who's in chapter 1. Not the same Pharaoh who issued the decree to throw the babies into the Nile. That Pharaoh has died. This is a new Pharaoh. And probably if the power was passed down from Pharaoh to his son, which would be most likely, this would make him Moses' uncle. Right? If, if he didn't have a son, it might have even gone to his grandson, in which case, at a stretch, this could be Moses' adopted brother. Most likely, though, it's his uncle, or something like that is the family connection here. So Moses knows this guy. He spent the first 40 years of his life in the presence, in the proximity of this Pharaoh. He's been there at the, at the Christmas parties with him. You know, the whole extended family's been there. He's had interactions with this guy. But for the last 40 years, he has lost contact because Moses has been in Midian, and now he comes back with a very different agenda. So Moses, I think, comes into this scene brimming with confidence, and you can kind of feel that in the opening dialogue. Moses has just met with the Israelite overseers, 
And they have accepted what he said. He's performed the signs before them. And they have believed. We read that at the end of chapter 4. They've believed. So all of Moses' fears about not being accepted by his own people and they're not going to listen to me, all that's dissipated. He has been believed. He has been accepted. The Israelites are with him. His own people, they've got his back. They're buying in. They're with the plan. All that remains now is the small matter of talking to Pharaoh. And Moses is thinking, we're going to be free by lunchtime. This is easy. This is no problem at all. He's expecting to go one round with Pharaoh and then the Israelites are out. So he, he bowls into Pharaoh's presence here. And Aaron, who is the spokesperson for Moses, <clears throat> says this, this famous prophetic statement in verse 1, let my people go. And Pharaoh comes back with a statement just as emphatic, I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And you sort of almost imagine Moses and Aaron looking at each other slightly bewildered at this point. It's like, what happened? What this was supposed to be, what, what's going on here? And so Aaron goes in again, tries a second time. Oh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. We've got to take this journey or else God's going to strike us with the plagues. But Pharaoh just gets indignant with them. He tells the Israelites, they're lazy, get back to work, stop wasting my time. He drives Moses and Aaron out of his presence. That's the end of the encounter. And then the same day he makes this decree that now the Israelites are going to have to gather their own straw for brickmaking. The straw was used to reinforce the bricks, stop them cracking. So now the Israelites, have, their workload is increased exponentially, but the quota stays the same. In other words, what Pharaoh does is set completely unrealistic targets for the Israelites, completely unrealistic production targets that he knows can't possibly be met. So he's setting the Israelites up for failure and therefore for more brutal treatment. The Israelite elders are so dismayed by this, they come back to Pharaoh, they seek another audience with Pharaoh without Moses and Aaron this time. That's telling, they don't even want those guys in this, this time. They come back to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you're being unreasonable, you're being unrealistic, these targets, they cannot be met. But Pharaoh just restates his demands, reissues his decree, tells them they're lazy again and tells them to get out of his presence. So then the Israelite elders go and find Moses and Aaron and they rip into them. And you see this contrast here. At the end of chapter 4, the Israelites are worshipping God with Moses and Aaron. They're having this big praise and worship meeting with them. And then at the end of chapter 5, they're pronouncing God's curse on Moses and Aaron. In the space of one chapter, gone from worshipping God to trying to invoke God to curse Moses and Aaron because they are so angry with these guys for turning Pharaoh against them, for making their lives harder, not easier, but much, much harder. And they don't want anything to do with these guys anymore. And the chapter ends then with Moses coming into the presence of God, defeated and dejected, and just crying out, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? The word trouble literally means evil. These are strong words. Moses is accusing God. He's saying, God, why have you brought evil on these people? What's the problem, is, is the paraphrase. What's the problem, God? We, I thought we had an arrangement here. You called me to be your deliverer. You, you showed me these signs. I got my son circumcised. That wasn't a lot of fun. And now here I am. I've fulfilled my part of the bargain and nothing has happened. You have not done what you said you were going to do. He's shaking the fist at God here. You think about the journey of Moses in the space of this one chapter. He starts off brimming with confidence, full of hope, full of energy. 
by the end of chapter 5, he's utterly defeated. He's discouraged, he's angry, he's frustrated with God, and as far as he can see, the whole rescue plan is just in complete shambles. It's going nowhere. And things have gotten worse, not better. And Moses asks God the question that we all ask when we go through hard times and difficulties and struggle. Why, God? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why us? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why are you not answering my prayers? That's what we want to know when we suffer, right? When we struggle, when we hit hard times. You might be able to see yourself in Moses' story. You think about your own life and the trajectory that you've come on over the past few years. Maybe you can think back recently to a time life was fairly much under control. You, things were okay, relatively stable, and then something's happened. An event, series of events, a process, whatever it is, and now you're just hurting. You're just battling. And, and you, you almost can't quite understand how it's gone from this to this in such a short space of time. It's just things are hard now. And you're sitting here this morning and you are just, you're in anguish. It's just really, really hard. And you can hide it fairly well and you can still have pleasant conversations, but you are struggling. And sometimes that comes about precisely because we've taken a step of faith. You know, you've actually stepped out and tried to do something. You've tried to step out and do something for the kingdom. You've taken a risk. You've tried to do something for God. And you've, you've expected a degree of success. And you've just been met by failure. And it's gotten worse, not better. And then you try praying about it. And what happens when you pray? It just gets worse again. And you think, well, why am I bothering? Why am I bothering to pray? It's like God's against me. What's why is this happening? We just cry out, why? Some of you are asking that question now. Why? Why am I afflicted with this? Some of you are battling stuff that's been going on for a long time, long-term health issues, long-term mental illness, and you're asking, why? Why is this afflicted? I see other people that just seem to be doing fine. You may have even been hurt by someone in your life. You've been wounded by someone, and they're doing great. They're, I mean, their life is fantastic now. And you've been left with this brokenness and this wound. And, you're, and there's just such a sense of injustice with that. I mean, you feel it. There's like a rage. If you dwell on it for long enough, there's a rage that just rises up within you about that because that is not how it's supposed to be. In every row of this building right now, there are these stories. This is where we live. This is the suffering and the struggle of our lives. And we cry out, why? Why, God, is this happening? And isn't it interesting that God doesn't answer that question for Moses? <clears throat> he could have, and there is a reason, but God doesn't directly answer that question. He goes on to restate the promises to Moses, but he never directly answers that question why. I think it's indicative of the way God works that he doesn't usually answer that question. He doesn't usually answer. It doesn't mean there's no reason, but God often doesn't reveal it to us. I mean, there was clearly a reason why all of this suffering went on. It was part of the bigger plan. But God doesn't reveal it to Moses now, and he doesn't tend to reveal it to us. We want to know why. We're desperate to know why. And you know why that is? Because as human beings, we need to know that there's some value in what I'm going through so that it gives it some sort of purpose and meaning so something's actually going to come from it. We have to attach some kind of significance to our suffering. So we want to know why, why, why. But it's impossible to know why. Could it be that God is testing you? Maybe. Could it be that Satan is attacking you? Maybe. 
Could it be that you just live in a messed up world and this stuff happens? Probably. That's probably what it is. That we live in a world that is fundamentally stuffed up because of the sin of our forefathers. Fundamentally broken because of sin. And stuff just goes wrong and evil is rampant and the world is shot through with sin. That's why, if you're looking for a reason, that's about the best that we're going to get, is that we live in a world which is still largely under the control of the evil one, who, who holds tremendous power. And there is brokenness in this world and buildings fall down and bridges collapse and kids get sick and our bodies decay and they die and there is brokenness in our minds and our hearts and we struggle and we suffer and people use their God-given freedom to commit violence and corruption, even in really good sports like soccer. still happens. And we do this and tectonic plates shift and cause massive human loss of life. This is the world after Genesis 3. This is the world we inhabit. And, and, and honestly, if, if, you, if you fixate too much on the why question, you're going to chase your tail. You'll be going around in circles. You'll be looking for a reason. And is it God or is it Satan? And is it this or is it me or is it what? And, and you just, you're not going to get anywhere. By doing that, God doesn't choose to answer that question. One day he will, one day he might if there is such a reason. But the best answer is that we live in a broken and fallen world and that might not be the answer you want, but it's the reality that we live in. That's the nature of our suffering. That's what happens. But what God does is he puts the suffering of Moses and the suffering of his people inside a bigger story. And this is the emphasis of the Bible. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time, arguably any time, talking about the reason for evil, the reason for suffering. What it does is focus on God's response to evil. What is God going to do about this? What is God going to do about our suffering? That is the burden of Scripture, to answer that question, not the why. Job asks the why question, what does he get? A discourse on zoology. You know, were you there when I created this? Were you there when I created that? Were you there when this animal was... That's what, that's what God answers this question. He doesn't really get the answer that he wants. We don't tend to get the answer we want. But what God will do is place our suffering and our struggle inside a bigger story if we let him. That's what he does with Moses. The first eight verses of chapter six. He takes Moses back through the story. And you look at these verses in, in the beginning of chapter six. There's not a lot of new information there. Nothing really that God hasn't said to Moses before. But he knows that Moses needs to hear again the story of hope. He needs to hear a story that points forward from his suffering to deliverance, to redemption. And so he tells him the story. He takes him back to the covenant says, Moses, remember, I made this covenant with Abraham. And Moses, I do hear the groanings of my people in the present. I do. I remember their struggle. And then Moses, remember, I've promised that I will deliver you. You're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. I'm going to take you out of this land. Pharaoh's going to drive you out of his country. I'm going to settle you in your own land. He tells Moses the story again, the story of redemption, the story of hope. That's what we've got to hear when we suffer, that our suffering is part of a much, much bigger story. And that story doesn't just end at the promised land where Israel got to. It ends or it culminates at the cross. It comes to its real climax at the cross. That's where we need to focus when we suffer. Not on talking about why does this happen? Maybe there's a reason. What's the reason? Focus on the cross and what has been done there about suffering and evil. There's some interesting parallels, if you look at it, between the suffering of Moses 
in this chapter and the suffering of Jesus through his passion. In fact, you could possibly call Exodus 5 the passion of Moses. It's the suffering. It's one of the lowest points, certainly the lowest point in Moses' life so far, and one of the lowest that he's going to experience. Moses is completely rejected by his own people. He's rejected by the elders of Israel. Who does that remind you of? Jesus went through the same thing, didn't he? Through his life, through his passion. I mean, Jesus, when his ministry started, Jesus, he had huge crowds. Things were going great up in Galilee. Big crowds, thousands of people. By the end of his ministry, by the time he gets to the cross, who's he got? Handful of people. Couple of family, couple of friends, that's it. It's whittled down and down. It's like the opposite of church growth. It's just gone to nothing, virtually nothing. Jesus is abandoned by friends, by family. He's turned away from by the Jewish religious leaders, for sure, as well as the Roman leaders. By every possible section of society, Jesus is abandoned, he's rejected, he's left destitute, just like Moses was. And then Moses, just as Moses cries out, why, God, have you brought this trouble on your people? Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both men, in a desperate point of life, cry out, why? And neither man receives an answer. Neither man, and it doesn't mean there's no reason. Clearly, in both cases, there was. And yet, in that moment, Yahweh decides not to answer. Doesn't answer Moses, doesn't answer Jesus, just silence. But what we know is that the suffering of Jesus was fundamentally different to the suffering of Moses. Because Jesus' suffering was not just for him, it was vicarious. That means it's for us. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain. Surely he bore our suffering. It's what Christ did on the cross. He took up your pain. All that stuff that you're going through in your life at the moment, the anguish, the grief that you're feeling, the agony that your, your soul is that Jesus took it up. He drew it into his own body on the cross. That's what he's done. The depression that you're struggling with, the anxiety, the low self-esteem, Jesus took it took it up. He took up your suffering. All the, all the struggles you're going through within your family, kids who are just making decisions that are breaking your heart, Jesus took it up. He took up that suffering. The suffering that you're seeing in someone close to you and you can't do anything about it, Jesus took it up. He took up into himself. Took up. Surely he bore that pain in himself. He bore it in his body on the cross, all of it, carried it, felt it, and it killed him. It crushed him. But he carried it so that he would share it with us, that he would shoulder our burdens, that he would come alongside us and meet us right in the middle of our pain, right in the middle of our struggle, and carry us through, and that one day there'd be a day when suffering and pain and grief just melts away. That's what he's secured for us through the cross, a day when finally pain will melt away and the shalom of God will fill our hearts. I want to read you a passage in the New Testament that talks about that day, one of the most encouraging passages in the midst of suffering. And some of you here this morning just need to hear these words wash over you, just receive some encouragement from them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Therefore, verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You read those uh, words, light and momentary troubles. It, it seemed, did that seem a bit flippant? It seemed a bit naive, light. Some of the stuff you're going through, it's not light. It's not momentary. It's major. But you think, remember who it is writing these words? The Apostle Paul. When he's writing these words to the Corinthian church, he's got on his back 195 scars from a Jewish whip. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 195 scars. There's not a square centimeter of Paul's back that had not been ripped open through scourging. And it wasn't just that. He'd been beaten with rods. He'd been pelted with stones. He'd been shipwrecked and driven out of cities and imprisoned numerous times, rejected by his people, the Jews, rejected by the Gentiles, trying to keep a whole lot of dysfunctional churches going. That's Paul's reality. He's a man who is familiar with suffering that many of us will never know. And he talks about his sufferings as light and momentary. Now, he's not trying to diminish suffering. He's not trying to say it doesn't matter. What he's saying is when you fix your eyes on what is coming, when you fix your eyes on our eternal glory in Christ Jesus, it will eclipse what's going on in your life. Yes, there's still tremendous pain. Yes, your heart may just still be in anguish. But when you set your eyes on what is unseen, our eternal glory in Jesus Christ, it begins to overshadow the burdens of the present. The Paul says the, the present sufferings, they're not worth even comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns and we are clothed in his righteousness and we're bathed in Jesus Christ and we're just so completely consumed in who he is that grief and pain and loss and anger and injustice, it all just dissipates. It'll all just melt away and our hearts will finally be at rest Man, that's what some of you are longing for today, right? Just rest. Just a soul that is at rest. And that's going to happen one day when Jesus returns. He's going to lead our soul to rest in him fully, completely, eternally. That day's coming. That's the big story. That's the big story that we've got to keep our eyes on when we are suffering. That's the story that will give us perspective. And the reason that that story, one of the reasons that story is so important is because when you do hit the wall, when you do really struggle, there are other voices that are going to try and spin your suffering a different way. There are other voices that are going to try and turn it in a different direction. Come back a minute for a minute to Exodus 5. <clears throat> one of the other main characters in this chapter is Pharaoh. And he's got his own agenda going on here. Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, is really presented as an anti-God type figure. He's an historical person, no question about that. This is a real Pharaoh, but he's also a theological figure. And in some sense, Pharaoh is a typology of Satan. He's a type of Satan. And by looking at what Pharaoh does, you get a bit of an insight into some of the ways that Satan works, some of the ways the devil works in our lives, because Pharaoh really is the embodiment of evil. He's the ultimate oppressor. He's the ultimate enemy of God. He's pure evil. And what Pharaoh does here is cunning. 
He's smart. He just sows a little lie. He just spins a story the different way. You know, God wants to place the story in the context of hope. Pharaoh wants to take the situation and spin a little lie out of it. And he does that with just one word. You know what it is? The word he says three times in this passage? Lazy. Lazy, that's what you are. And he knows what he's doing. It's not just being impulsive. He's sowing a strategic lie in the minds of the Israelites and his own people to interpret their suffering. You see, your suffering, your, the battle that you're facing at the moment, in and of itself, it's, just, it's neutral. But it's given meaning by how we interpret it. It's given meaning by the story that encases it. And what Pharaoh wants to do is put a story around it that explains it in a destructive way. Lazy. So with one word, he's created a whole new narrative for this, for this situation. It's transferred the blame from the oppressor to the oppressed. Now it's their fault. The reason they're struggling, the reason they're suffering, just because they're lazy. What needs to happen to lazy people? Work harder. Give them more to do. Then they'll stop listening to these lies. Then they'll stop listening to Moses and Aaron. And of course, Pharaoh's overriding objective underneath all this is what? Separate out Moses and Aaron from the rest of the Israelites. Got to drive a wedge in this little resistance movement. Got to create a faction. Because if he can turn Moses, or if he can turn the Israelites against Moses and Aaron, he's stamped this whole thing out before it even begins. If he can get them fighting among themselves, done deal. That's his agenda. That's what Pharaoh's trying to do. He's a smart guy. Martin Luther King gave this beautiful commentary on this part of Exodus in one of his books. He says, The Pharaohs had a favorite and effective strategy to keep their slaves in bondage, keep them fighting among themselves. The divide-and-conquer technique has been a potent weapon in the arsenal of oppression. But when slaves unite, the Red Seas of history open and the Egypts of slavery crumble. Doesn't that just sound like Martin Luther King? <laughs> That's just great. And, it, and he's, this is what Pharaoh has done, is he's driven a wedge there and with one word. And we've got to be mindful of the fact that when we do encounter difficulties in our life, Satan will try to do exactly the same thing and often in the same way. With one simple little word, he'll spin your story in a different direction. One little word. It might be the word useless. Because what we'll tend to do when we suffer is we'll internalize it. Something's going wrong in my life. Something's wrong with me. My business is failing. I'm failing. This venture is crashing. I'm no good. See, we're internalized all the time. I was teaching a preaching course a little while ago at Laidlaw College and talking about how preaching, the act of preaching, is very tied to our self-identity because it's intrinsic to who we are. It's my voice, it's my personality, it's, it's who I am. And this guy at the back of the class piped up. He's studying a jazz music degree down in Christchurch and he was saying, it's interesting, you know, that you look at the students that drop out of that course, that drop out of a jazz music degree, he said, most of them are the singers. Most of them are vocalists. Why? Because when a vocalist is critiqued, it's internal. You ask the band up here, singing is a fundamentally different thing than playing a musical instrument. An instrument is external, your voice is internal. And so it's very easy with preaching, with singing, for what we do to be very tied to who we are. And when that's critiqued, even constructively, we hear it as an attack on our own self-worth. Now, we tend to do the same in our suffering, in our struggles. We'll internalize it, and what's going wrong around us, we project that as something that's wrong within us, and we feel useless. It's exactly what Satan wants, because then you'll descend out, down into hopelessness, 
and he'll drive you apart from God. Another word that he might be sowing in your life is the word blame. You look at the passing round of blame in the story. Pharaoh blames the Israelites. The Israelites blame Moses. Moses blames God. The blame just shifts and shifts through the whole chapter. And isn't this the way Satan works? Maybe what he's doing right now in the midst of what you're in is causing you to blame someone. If he hadn't done this, if she just hadn't done that, if my kids hadn't done this, if I hadn't made that decision or they hadn't made that whatever it is, there's, there's always, and there may legitimately be someone to blame, but as long as the devil can get you focusing on that person, he's, he's preventing you from focusing on God. He's preventing you from focusing on any hope at all, and you're just going to get more and more bitter. You're going to focus more on vengeance and justice and those kinds of things, and it's just going to tie up your heart. That's exactly where Satan wants you, and he'll, he'll sow that into your life with just one little word. Is there some way in which Satan is just planting a little lie in your mind about your situation, and he's just trying to give you a different story, spin it a different way, to lead you away from God rather than towards... We need to be able to identify those lies. And we need to be able to return to the redemptive story, the story of hope of the gospel that leads us to Jesus. And the only way that you and I can really do that is by doing exactly what Moses does at the end of chapter 5 and verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord. And, and I, this is not a little Christian cliche of just got to turn back to God. This is the most important practice, returning to the Lord. Moses comes back to God and he says, why, Lord? You know what this is? Here in verse 22, when Moses says, why, Lord? It's the beginning of the biblical tradition of lament. That's all through the Psalms, King David among others. Why, Lord? Why, why, why? This is, it's called lamenting. Lamenting is not just about sitting back and crying. It's about actively pouring out our feelings, frustration, blame, anger, whatever it is, to God. But it's directed towards God. Not to other people, not just to ourselves, but it is being in the presence of God and being real with God about what we're going through. That's what Moses does. And he uses some pretty strong language and he uses some pretty harsh words, but God never rebukes him for it. God does not anywhere in this passage, chapter 5 or 6, tell Moses that he's wrong for questioning, wrong for criticizing God even that he's wrong for pointing his finger at God. God doesn't say that. And God's not afraid to rebuke Moses when he needs it, right? Remember back to when God told Moses, you know, Moses said that he wasn't uh, a good speaker. God rebuked him for that. But here he doesn't. And I think it's because God's just pleased that Moses is here. God's just pleased that Moses is with him and in his presence. Even if that means he's stamping his feet and getting angry, God's just pleased when we are there, when we are with him. Moses has returned to God, and that's the best place for him. And I want to encourage, especially those of you this morning that are really struggling, things are really hard right now for you, and I know this might not be what you feel like doing, but can I just encourage you, return to God and be in his presence and spend time and make time to simply sit and be still in the presence of God. Because what Satan will try and do more than anything else is drive a wedge between you and God. Just as Pharaoh tried to drive a wedge between the Israelites and Moses, that's what the devil wants to do in your life. He doesn't really care that much about your suffering. He'll just use your suffering to alienate you from God. And we need to resolve that we're not going to let that happen. 
We're not going to allow this to drive us from God. We're going to allow this to drive us to God, and we're simply going to be with him and return to him. Isaiah says, in quietness and confidence will be your strength. In returning and rest will be your reward. In returning and rest. Returning to the presence of God. and be, That's where we can start to see the lies for what they are. That's where we can start to fix our eyes on the story of hope for what it is. That's where we can start to soak our soul in the eternal glory that's awaiting us and let that pull us forward. It's in the presence of God, intentional and conscious time in the presence of God. And I know for some of you, you just don't feel like you can do that. You don't feel like you can pray. It's just too hard at the moment. Can't pray. Can't talk to God. You're just too angry at him or it's just too hard. Can't read the Bible. It's too hard. Just cannot even. Oh, I know what that is to feel like that. You just, I just, you know, don't want to do it. And this is just like you're resisting this with everything in you. That's okay. It's okay to feel like that. What I would encourage you to do is just simply to sit and be still in the presence of God. Have your Bible in front of you. Open it up to Psalms, even if it's just a place to put your head down and cry. Just be there. Just be there in the presence of God and let him work away on you. Because I truly believe that when you place yourself in that position of just being with the Lord and having his word open and available, God will work in your, in your heart in a way that you may not even feel or realize. The only weapon that we have in our struggle against Satan, the only offensive weapon according to Ephesians 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's all we've got. All the rest is defensive. That's the offensive weapon. The only way you are going to be able to combat the lies of the evil one in your life, in your family, in your marriage, is by being in Scripture somehow. And I tell you, if you possibly can, get yourself an audio version of the Bible. This is really good. If you can't read it, you can at least listen. listen get, the, get the Gateway app, Bible Gateway, get the laptop, set it to Psalm 1, and let it play. And just let yourself, force yourself to listen to some psalms. Just listen to a few psalms and just let it wash out. You might not feel any different at the end of that. All of your struggles are still there. But you can be assured that the Word of God has its own power to work in your soul in a way you can't fully recognize. The psalms say the Word of the Lord refreshes the soul. The law of the Lord is upright, bringing light to the eyes. The law of the Lord gives joy to the heart. Where are you going to find that joy? Where are you going to find that light? Where are you going to, where's your soul going to be refreshed other than in the presence of Yahweh, in his word, by his spirit, through his power? If you can't pray and you can't read, that's fine. Just listen. Put yourself somewhere where you'll hear because you've got to have a voice from outside of you speaking some truth into your situation. You know, some of you are here today and life's actually pretty good for you and you struggle to connect with the suffering of Moses in Exodus 5. That's fine. Be thankful that things are reasonably stable for you right now. You know what your role is in all of this? Pray. Please pray. Call to mind the names of people you know around you, even physically around you right now in your row. If you know, if there's someone in your life, if there's someone in our church who's struggling, your role is now that of an intercessor. That's what you are called because they can't pray 
They can't pray for themselves right now. You need to pray for them. You've got to be not just praying for, praying on their behalf, praying the words they can't find. And one day, Lord knows, you'll need them to do it for you. So you pray, you stand in the gap between heaven and earth and you pray for that person. You pray for the power of God to be released in that person's life, that they would stand firm in the day of evil. And if you are battling this morning, and if you're really struggling, I, I invite you to do what the scriptures call us to do, return to the Lord. And I invite you to do that in this time. We're going to take a few minutes now before the baptism, before we finish the service. We're going to take a few minutes. I know time's precious, and you don't get a lot of this time out in the world, so we're going to take some now. We're going to take a few minutes now. Time of returning, time of rest, time to be with the Lord. And some of you just need to be still and let God just wash over you and re-speak his promises into your life and minister to you in the midst of the battles that you're facing in your life. I want to give you a couple of invitations during this time. We're going to take communion, so we're all going to be up and moving around anyway. If you would like during this time to come forward and just be at the foot of the cross, just in a symbolic way, to bring your life again to Jesus and say, God, I don't have the strength in me. I cannot do this alone. I just don't have, I'm at the end of myself here. And you just need to be here and receive afresh in your life the power of grace, the power of Jesus Christ to take another step and go another round. Then you can do that. You can go and grab communion, come down here to the cross and just be in your own time and place with God, just returning and finding him in the midst of it all. If you'd like someone to pray for you, even right now, we won't have as much time after the service today because we'll be out at the baptism. But if you'd like someone to pray for you now, you're welcome to come and sit down in these chairs here and our elders are available. You don't need to say a word. We'll just know that if you're sitting in one of those chairs, you just need prayer. And we'll just pray. God's, he knows what you need. We'll just pray for you. If, if, if you would like someone to pray, this is how we minister to each other. This is how we be a body for each other. And if you'd like to get communion and just come back to your seat and be with the Lord, then do that. But may we know the grace of Jesus Christ in the midst of our suffering. And may we set our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So that these struggles, tough as they are, might be seen as light and momentary afflictions in view of the eternal glory that awaits us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.